She said, you pronounce your name wrong. I do pronounce my name wrong. Yeah. She said, my yeah. mother's like, it's Iorio. I go, there's That's no exactly. way to get him to say that. But I can't, I can't go around saying Iorio. You know what I mean? It just doesn't. You have to do this when you do it. It almost sounds like Yuri, which is a very typical, you know, Slavic name. back to the Future's Edge podcast. I'm Jim Murio. With me, as always, is Bob Iaccino, who's the brains behind the operation and co-host. And today we have a special guest. It's going to be a little bit of a different show. Instead of focusing strictly on domestic macroeconomics, we're going to talk a lot about geopolitical stuff. We have Valina Chekarova, who is the founder of FACE, which is a geopolitical uh, consulting group and also an instructor at the Real World Risk Institute with Nassim Taleb, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, institution first before we move on, the uh, FACE? Well, it's a um, one-man show. Uh, practically, uh, I have been a director of uh, the leading Austrian think tank uh, based in Vienna for the last 13 years, and now I'm transitioning towards uh, uh, working with the private sector, covering geopolitical, geoeconomic risks, a lot of, uh, you know, what has been going on uh, over the last uh, several years, uh, with a special focus, of course, on geopolitics. Fantastic. Okay, so to start with the question, well, I'm gonna, well, actually, let's go to a serious question first. We'll get to nonsense questions in a little bit. But I just gave a speech last week in, in Miami when I was talking about similarities between the 1980 cost push inflation that Reagan inherited when he took office. And one of the things I talked about was that it was a new dawn of opening the doors to international trade and taking advantage of labor, inexpensive labor from developing countries. And now all of a sudden you fast forward to 2022, that seems like it's not happening and you don't have high hopes for better trade relations in the next couple of years, better uh, transfer of goods, transfer of labor over borders. What's your thoughts? Oh yeah, absolutely agree. And in fact, I didn't have high hopes for that already before the pandemic began. So my basic case was already that we were in a deglobalization cycle, um, obviously since 2012, 2013, of course, uh, one that was not manifested in all these relevant uh, networks uh, because the global flows were still intact. Uh, but with the pandemic and now with the decoupling becoming more obvious by the day, the decoupling between the United States and China, my basic case is that we are uh, going to observe either a violent kind of decoupling, that means that the global system is going to split in two major parts, one centered around United States uh, with partners and allies, and another one obviously centered around China. If China, of course, manages to convert this two economic cloud that it has uh, gathered over the last 30 years, also into a regional power projection. Uh, and once again, it's going to forge 
partnerships and alliances. It, ha it has to expand beyond its realm of, uh, you know, influence uh, towards uh, African markets, uh, European markets, and Latin American markets. So we are going to observe that, and this is going to have significant implications on global affairs and all these relevant uh, networks, specifically trade, economics, finances, but also energy markets, and so on and so forth, so commodities. So this kind of global, just to wrap it up, global flows, the way we've been observing this phenomenon, starting with the collapse of the Soviet Union, because you named the 80s. And then, of course, we we've practically witnessed an unanticipated outcome of this US-led globalization, um, to the point that now we are going to observe the reverse phenomenon. But we have no idea how this outcome will look like. Is it just, so? So is it just a question of egos? Like when we sit on the sidelines and say, "What the hell is going on? Why can't we move forward with our relationship? And why must we move backwards?" And it always seems like politics get involved, and someone has to play the tough guy. Is it strictly a matter of egos? And if we had the right people in charge, could we change the course? I don't think that it's it's just a matter of ego. Uh, it's uh, also um, um, let's let's put it that way. First and foremost, probably the big difference to the 80s, to the 90s, to the previous, you know, cycles uh, in terms of globalization versus deglobalization is that right now we have a kind of a nexus between economics and politics. You can no longer, you know, split these two worlds. Previously, you had the kind of parallel worlds. Politics with, you know, all these egomaniacs, if you like, you know, uh, the struggle I for do. power. <laughs> the struggle for power. This has been a, a, a kind of alternative uh, universe. And the economics, the financial world, they have been doing their business. And there were there were no, no, not so many bridges in between. But right now, the nexus between economics and politics is so you know, uh, so narrow and uh, everything that is happening in the world of uh, uh, global affairs, you know, you know, big um, political uh, uh, powers and regional as well, uh, is also affecting uh, these networks of finances and uh, economics trade. So obviously, it's not just about eagles, it's also about uh, competition. It's about concentration of global and regional power centers. It's about uh, uh, the competition in specific domains, obviously, the first being the political uh, economy, right? Uh, who is having the biggest geoeconomic cloud and can control these flows or can actually exercise influence. Also has the tools such as, let's say, sanctions or uh, monetary um, tools such as uh, the policy of central banks. Uh, you, you, you clearly see that this all has an effect on uh, all relevant uh, uh, areas. But uh, then again, uh, it is, uh, of course, also about, um, um, you know, uh, rising geopolitical uh, actors. Uh, once again, we just don't have an answer as to whether China will manage to transform uh, this geoeconomic cloud over the, from the last 30 years into a, a real uh, geopolitical power projection. But it is obvious that China is trying to do so. And that means also competition and rivalry. So it's not just about egos, it's about real power, um, you know, state power competition. 
Okay, I have one question, Bobby, then I'll let you ask the question, but one question with two parts. Well, and six subsets, but anyway, in about 25 minutes, you would ask a question. But the question, when you say either goods cross borders or armies cross borders, you know, I've heard that my whole life. Do you believe that's an absolute is the first part of the question? And the second is how does it play out? Where do we begin manufacturing and how long does that transition take to bring our manufacturing back to more friendly countries? Well, first and foremost, right now, uh, as I said already, uh, we have these two scenarios. Uh, depending on which scenario it will, you know, emerge, a violent decoupling, that means speed it up uh, one. We've seen that actually it doesn't matter whether it's a, a Republican or a Democratic administration. Both are going in the same direction now with uh, some decisions uh, by, the, by Biden's administration pointing to the same direction. So take the chips act uh, the techno you know the whole technological domain uh this decoupling is continuing but we have also a kind of a second scenario that points to a rather more peaceful systemic coexistence where both united states and china decide that they need to cooperate uh and synergize in terms of uh you know uh calming down the global economy uh, following the pandemic and so on, and then they simply try to somehow coexist. But I think that we are still in the first scenario. Uh, when it comes to the manufacturing, once again, it is about the ability of these two powers, because this is, so to say, the first year, you know, these are the systemic rivals. These are the two uh, systemic competitors. Anything else is beyond them, right? So it's about the way how they will forge uh, certain partnerships uh, exercise influence over partners and allies. And also it's about the way how they will write the fourth, uh, you know, the wave of the fourth industrial uh, uh, revolution. So how quick and how successful they will be in all these critical technological domains. Uh, once again, it's a question mark we, because we don't know exactly the speed, the scale of uh, these technological breakthroughs. Uh, but obviously, once again, these are the two front runners. Everyone else is lagging behind. And then again, if this creates a bifurcation, so imagine once again, a kind of bipolarization. Uh, the question is, what about the rest? What about all of these other uh, relevant regional powers that can offer, uh, let's say, uh, you mentioned manufacturing, the same goes for reconfiguration of uh, supply chains. So uh, it's going to be a competition over the hearts and minds of potential uh, and relevant and loyal, if you like, and predictable partners and allies. And just to give you one example, um, I argue that, in fact, Russia sided already with uh, China before it took the decision to make a move on Ukraine. So practically it was already recognizing this kind of bifurcation and it was like, okay, we're gonna sign with the Chinese because we need all this liquidity. They're gonna support us uh, in a comprehensive manner. And this will be the only avenue for, let's say, uh, survival, but also bypassing of the Western sanctions uh, once we uh, you know, launch a full-scale war on. Ukraine. This is just one example. So some countries will be siding. We saw this also with the Australian case. Australia entered the security pact with the Americans and with UK uh, last year, and this created a huge, uh, you know, downside effect because of their uh, 
geoeconomic connections, the geoeconomic ties with the Chinese. But some most of the regional powers right now are kind of oscillating. They do not want to, you know, be confronted with either or choices. They want to offer choices to both sides. And I think that this is going to be the transitionary period, which will create a lot of uh, positive effects uh, because of this competition for those in between. Robbie? Yeah, I have, Valina, so many questions. I, I don't even know where to begin. So I just want to kind of start with a simple one. I was reading your recent essay, and we'll try to put the link up for if anybody wants to read it, we'll put it in the description in both Spotify and, and hopefully YouTube. It's not me that does that. But I got to the part where you talk about the political economy of the, of the systematic competition. And a line in here, you know, admittedly, the geopolitics that you cover so well is a secondary thing for me. I only look at it as it affects markets. So I read this line and I thought I need to ask her about this. Any competitor strong enough to question the dominance of a global power would seize the opportunity to fill the gaps whenever they may present themselves as we are currently observing in Afghanistan. So since Afghanistan rarely has an effect on any of the uh, economic indicators or markets that I watch, what are we seeing in Afghanistan that you're referring to and how does that apply to the larger world? Well, my base case, for instance, for Afghanistan uh, has been that uh, uh, that America, in fact, wanted to withdraw. The way how they withdrew from Afghanistan was, uh, you know, an absolute disaster. But uh, the decision to withdraw was uh, uh, critically important uh, from a U.S. point of view. Why? Because they created a security problem for uh, the Chinese. Uh, Afghanistan borders uh, China. Uh, it uh, created a huge uh, security vacuum uh, next to, you know, the, not just the border of uh, China, but given all these uh, uh, terrorist networks uh, on the ground, not only in Afghanistan, but also uh, in Central uh, Asian, uh, in the Central Asian uh, terrain. This is, uh, of course, uh, still a huge problem for the Chinese. And by doing so, uh, by the, you know, by withdrawing they practically uh, opened up a huge uh, gap for them. And it was actually the, the strongest signal uh, for me personally that something was about to happen was uh, the way how uh, Russians and Chinese were coordinating politically months before the withdrawal happened, starting, you know, all these uh, closed door ties, you know, talks with the uh, Taliban and so on. So uh, obviously uh, the Chinese will have to invest a huge amount of time, resources uh, and military boots on the ground to actually stabilize uh, South and uh, Central Asia, which once again, proves uh, actually my thesis, my thesis on the modus vivendi of coordination between Russia and China that goes beyond Eastern Europe and Europe. And that is that uh, the Chinese will need, actually China will need Russia for, you know, for this military role. To, it's going to be a formula of splitting of uh, uh, tasks and functions where the Russians are going to play this regional mercenary power role for the Chinese economic interests and then think of the new possibilities in terms of uh, 
transit corridors, connectivities, uh, natural resources. Think of the minerals that would be, uh, let's say, mined uh, and then uh, processed in China in terms of the global, uh, the so-called global deco decarbonization. I mean, once again, you see that it's not just about the security, but it's about the huge potential geoeconomic cloud that can be extracted from Afghanistan, unfortunately. You know, once again, Afghanistan may turn into this kind of, uh, um, let's say, um, uh, arena for uh, the geoeconomic interests of external powers. Um, and this is something that the Americans never did in the 20 years. They have never established any kind of connectivity corridors uh, to, you know, to practically uh, bridge Central Eastern, you know, Central and uh, South Asia, and then, of course, West Asia, which is now the Middle Eastern uh, corridor. And this is, I think, something that the Chinese will be eyeing. Uh, in, in this decade, they will be looking for alternative terrestrial corridors because they need a hedge strategy, an insurance, if you like, if the Indo-Pacific maritime lines, which are still under American control and control uh, by the American allies, are going to be blockaded in the future. So I think I know where you stand on this, but I, I wanted to ask you to sort of get in the mind of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party from a perspective of, obviously, I think a lot of people were surprised. I know Jim and I both were May of 2019, or I think it was late April, where President Biden basically said the Chinese are not competition for us. And here we sit now in December of 2022, and Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden and the entire administration is basically almost singularly focused in terms of uh, geopolitical national strategy on somehow competing with China, even though the president in 2019 said they're not competition. We've known it was bipartisan. Where, which power, whether you're looking at the U.S. or power in your opinion, or U.S. or China, rather, in your opinion, which one has bend in them? I mean, again, I read your note, so I, I think I know where you stand on this, but would you see there being a possibility for cooperation more on the U.S. side, the Chinese side, or is that just not going to happen? Well, we will be, of course, observing uh, uh, talks and, uh, you know, diplomatic shuttles on specific topics. Uh, uh, China and United States, they will have to communicate. And this is going to happen in terms of military to military uh, talks, in terms of uh, nuclear non-proliferation, big topic because China is not a part of any kind of international um, nuclear non-proliferation talks, as it was the case between Russia and the United States. So we will have this kind of uh, meetings uh, in the future as well. But uh, once again, um, whether it's going to be rather the uh, democratic approach, that means you know more about involving multilateral institutions and uh, agreements, forging blocks, alliances, partnerships, or is going to be more the Republican approach that is going to be more like a bilateral uh, uh, track uh, uh, or approach where you are going to look for, uh, let's say, a more predictable, loyal partners in all corners of the world and then engaging them against uh, against China. We are going forward with this decoupling, the one way or the other. And uh, one thing that I want you to understand is that it's not, it's a mutual thing. I mean, the Chinese are also uh, actually speeding up the process in all these relevant uh, domains. They want 
this this entanglement to happen and of course they uh, want to they play for time obviously they want you know uh, to uh, gain more time which is why Russia's war against Ukraine has the perfect timing. I mean, uh, obviously they have counted on the fact or let's say an uh, anticipation that the war will not be that long. So this was a huge disappointment, but so long as the Russians are keeping the Americans and the Europeans busy on the old continent, that's good news. That's good news for China because it's now that, they, uh, that she has cemented uh, his power, has purged his own party, has surrounded himself by loyal you know, nationalists and uh, party, uh, party members and military hawks. Uh, he is going to focus on the political uh, stability at home, uh, on the economic outlook, we know about the failed zero COVID policy by the Communist Party. Uh, this is going to be the big issue in the short term. So every day that uh, Russia keeps America and Europe busy um, on the old continent is actually uh, uh, one, uh, you know, a good news for the Chinese uh, strategy. Okay, so so here now, this is pushback time because I've heard everything you said. And there's one thing that doesn't make sense to me unless you can explain it. Okay, the last time we were involved in a Cold War, which just that you're kind of describing, uh, a, you know, Cold, Cold War 2.0, it seems like, right? And what happened was Gorbachev took over in Russia, Reagan took over here, we broke them economically by driving oil down to $9 a barrel, whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, they got together and worked things out. My question to this is, you make it sound like it's absolute and, and it's one direction and there's no way to get us off that path. If just a few key people in the three countries involved change seats and people who are more motivated for compromise take those seats, can't we get us off that track? Um, I don't think uh, that we are going to see this kind of uh, political shift in the short term. Uh, first. Uh, second, uh, um, uh, we have a very different situation than, uh, you know, as compared to Cold War, uh, you know, the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, because the Soviet Union was not part of the US-led socioeconomic networks. And once the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, the world moved on. It was a devastating period for the Soviet bloc, bloc but it was not a devastating period for the global economy and trade. But if something similar happens during this, you know, decoupling process, and like I said, it's a question mark how exactly this is going to happen. Uh, but in the short term, I just don't see, you know, any signals or trends projections that point to the other direction that they would that there would be a readiness on the one side or on the other side, uh, you know, to uh, to turn uh, to turn the processes into the other direction. I just don't see this happening based on you know the trends uh, and the signals that are coming from both sides. Uh, so we don't have actually any answers to these questions. What it means a, a real disentanglement, given that China has become part of all these uh, relevant U.S.-led socioeconomic networks over such a long period of time. So, Bobby, one more for me and then, then bring it back yeah, in. The question is this, is that well, the things we are talking about right here, to me, it smacks of inflation, smacks of inflation in metals markets. 
in you know uh, goods that are manufactured in China and supply chains. You you find this to be very very inflationary, correct? Absolutely, absolutely, very inflationary. Uh, just take the example of. Uh, uh, supply chains. So if you think that uh, reconfiguration of supply chains is going to take like a few years, no, that's not the case. These are highly technical processes. Uh, it will take 10 to 15 to 20 years. Um, um, all of these flows have been disrupted. Now they are looking, you know, for uh, alternative uh, transport routes, uh, energy corridors. We have all these disruptions in the in in the most relevant uh, socioeconomic network. So it's not just about the global trade. It's not just about the global economy, as you've uh, been observing. It's also about uh, commodities, about energy. So it's going to be a, a disruption par excellence. And it's going to take a lot of time. And this transitionary period is going to be highly disruptive in terms of also inflation. And as we've seen here in Europe, I mean, we've been in this uh, in this kind of scenario even before uh, Russia launched the war against uh, Ukraine. So obviously the war was also inflationary. And that is, I think, you know, next to the, the coupling and next to this kind of bifurcation as a systemic process, um, um, uh, highly inflationary. I would say, and of uh, course, the access to natural resources, commodities, given the fact that there is also a huge dichotomy between uh, the decision making uh, in the West, like let's take America, for example, or the European powers, they have decided to decarbonize, let's say by 2050, fully decarbonize, whatever that means. Uh, and then you take uh, countries such as India or China that have decided to fully decarbonize, not early than 2060, 2070. This is a huge gap. That means that in some, uh, you know, the fossil fuels will be flowing in some directions, but then again, not in other directions. So in some parts of the world, there will be further, you know, demand for certain commodities, but then again, in other parts of the world, you know, this kind of dichotomy is going to further disrupt, uh, you know, exactly this kind of uh, markets, the globalized market. So once again, uh, we have a lot more questions than answers. So my task is actually to point to the critical uncertainties and to point to the trends projections rather than to give you answers, uh, you know, in terms of clear outcomes. You already gave some answers. You said, I heard you say buy copper. Buy lithium, buy cobalt. Yeah. That's what I heard from that. Yeah. Bobby, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you, Valina, in terms of um, sort of strength of the party, uh, how would you compare the Chinese Communist Party now to maybe, I don't know, Brezhnev's Russia? I mean, you look at it from, if you go from, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis to the Berlin Wall falling, you're talking about 27 years, uh, somewhere around there, 27, 28 years between the two things. And if we were to take uh, Jimmy's more optimistic potential view and say, well, you know, all we need is some people to, to switch chairs for to get out of this sort of Cold War 2.0, which I really like that that name, Jimmy. Um, would you say that there's more of a sort of an ironclad control in the Chinese Communist Party than, say, Russia of the 60s? 
Well, we are obviously now entering. Uh, it's interesting because uh, this 20th uh, uh, Congress of uh, the Communist Party was a kind of manifestation of the next uh, stage of uh, the development of the Communist Party in China and also the establishment, the political elite. And this uh, third mandate of uh, Xi is going to be a very different one. The party uh, and uh, elite are turning more nationalistic, which is why we've also observed the most severe uh, fourth Taiwan crisis so far uh, following Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. But once again, uh, I, for instance, do not uh, actually do not see a military attack by China on Taiwan. In fact, I would uh, rather expect... Uh, exactly. So it's not mm -hmm. just about bad news, in fact. So no World War III whatsoever. There is no interest... Um, actually in a direct military confrontation. So both powers, uh, the United States and China, do realize that uh, there is, uh, you know, um, no need for uh, getting involved in a direct military uh, confrontation, which is why, you know, I went for the case of Cold War 2.0 with a question mark, because once again, we don't know exactly how this is going to uh, play out. But... Uh, it's going to be a more nationalistic, more, um, you know, um, more um, uh, harden, hardening uh, political establishment in uh, China, one that is going to um, need more foreign policy, um, let's say, achievements, which is why, given the competition with India, India is projected to become uh, world's third economic power in this decade. It already overtook UK as the fifth economic power. So India is going to be on the winning side when it comes to these reconfigurations um, and the Indo-Pacific alliances of the United States. And then again, if you have also the example of Taiwan, they will obviously need uh, some kind of uh, foreign policy uh, gains uh, and uh, being surrounded by military hoax next to nationalist and uh, loyal communist uh, party members. My anticipation is that uh, we are going to see a phase in which there will be uh, a lot uh, more coming out in terms of assertiveness, you know, showing another face of China to the world. Uh, there is not going to be any further restraint, you know, and not involvement, non-involvement in global affairs, none, none of it. We are going to see a very active face, China showing, you know, its diplomatic cloud, uh, international, regional organizations uh, are already under certain Chinese influence. Take the Security Council as an example, regional organizations such as the Shanghai Organization um, and uh, for cooperation and that kind of uh, regional partnerships where once again, you know, the Chinese uh, uh, approach will be a very different one, more assertive, um, more, you know, more proactive, if you like. So it's going to be a very different than what we, what you've actually described as the 60s of uh, uh, 60s, 70s of the Soviet Union. Uh, are we going to see another Cuban missile crisis? If, you, this, if, if that is what you are alluring to, you need to understand that if there is one thing that the Chinese Communist Party has studied very carefully over the whole period of the last 30 years, that is actually the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they have fanatically, fanatically studied 
the whole history of the Soviet Union. And I think that they have learned also a few lessons given, you know, this, uh, uh, the, the experience of the Soviet Union, what, uh, you know, what were the failures of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. So I think that now they're also observing very carefully what is happening uh, in Europe with the military failures of Russia uh, against Ukraine. And I think that this is also actually an optimistic, uh, let's say an optimistic message for our uh, for our um, listeners, uh, viewers, is that uh, they would be very cautious to not, you know, get involved in a military adventure, let's say, in the Strait of Taiwan, given all the risks that this kind of uh, military attack may bring. Um, and, uh, yeah, and in reality, the same goes for uh, nuclear, for the question of the, you know, the use, potential use of nukes, right? Uh, there is a clear red line that China already communicated um, regarding the possible use of nuclear weapons. And if Russia would use a tactical, uh, tactical nuclear weapons against Ukraine, uh, that would mean that the support coming from China, but also countries like India, will be gone. It will be an absolute red line. And I think that this is also uh, very clear, not like the red line of Obama in Syria, but the real clear red line this time on behalf of the United States, uh, if nukes are to be used. First of all, so, thank you. Thank you for taking that quick shot at Obama. We do. We like a lot of sarcasm. We like a lot of ridicule. And finally, you did that. And that's fabulous. I think you you brushed over something a bit ago that I think is um, critical to our discussions in macroeconomics. So you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, that our focus, our trade relationship with China will slowly, it has to shift over to India. So in this whole scenario, scenario, India could be a huge winner. And over the next decade, two decades, India's economy could benefit substantially by a greater and tighter relationship with the US. Is that what you're saying? Or is India the prize of this whole Cold War? Is India the prize between the two countries? Uh, no, India is certainly not the prize, but uh, India will be one of uh, the big winners. I'm, I'm very bullish on India. Um, and India is not going to overtly side with the United States uh, because they have their own, let's say, non-alignment policy. They were also a leader of the non-alignment uh, non-alignment movement during the Cold War. And once again, they will be probably kind of uh, their own hub of regional power projection, but they will be obviously, obviously, uh, you know, supporting and promoting a lot of the Indo-Pacific uh, approach of the United States together with other partners such as Australia, Japan, South Korea, and so on. So ASEAN, the ASEAN region, the South, uh, the South um, East Asian region, and uh, India will be definitely on the winning side of this uh, global uh, and regional uh, supply chains reconfigurations. Also, when it comes to the technological domain, uh, think of chip. Uh, th think of the chips, the semiconductors. Taiwan cannot be the only, you know, uh, front runner. So there will be a lot also uh, happening uh, in India in this part of uh, the world. So uh, definitely, 
if I have to point to one winner of this uh, competition. And also they uh, don't see, a, you know, uh, when it comes to the military tensions with uh, uh, China, in fact, um, it is a, a kind of a curious, a curious, uh, curious uh, phenomenon because I argue that um, that India does not need the United States to cope with the Chinese along the line of factual control. You know, uh, in when when they have uh, these uh, episodes of military tensions, as much as uh, United States would need India to cope with China in, let's say, in China, in the Indo-Pacific uh, uh, domain, in the Indo-Pacific maritime domain, or in the South China Sea basin, like the Strait of Taiwan. Is there a? Um, okay, I want to be careful how I ask this question because. Uh, no, we don't be careful well, on this podcast. Swing away. All right. <laughs> At my core, I just don't like war in general. So obviously, when one country invades another, the initial reaction is, why did they do that? And then when you start to dig into it, I, I don't want to talk about any of the things that I, I don't find to be credible, but or at least I, I haven't, don't have the um, sort of capacity to find out if they're credible or not. But obviously, NATO for years and years and years encroached in areas they said they would not. And we've seen repeated warnings over the last decade from Putin saying, hey, you're not supposed to do this, right? NATO kept encroaching and expanding. Uh, where do you fall on that? I mean, obviously the, he took it the wrong way by invading a sovereign nation. And just for people who don't have a good ear for accents, Valina is not Russian, nor is she Ukrainian. So um, where do you fall in, in where the sort of not fault lies, but um, did Putin overreact? Did he have a credible argument in the first place and he just took the wrong path? Where do you fall in that conflict? Um, if I uh, have to wrap it up for you in, you know, a very short, uh, very short, uh, let's say, a few sentences, um, um, I argue that um, uh, Putin's um, plans and calculus on you know on this war um have been uh, let's say three-dimensional so of course first and foremost it was and it's still about the complete political economic and social subjugation of the second largest european country by the way it's just for you to imagine you're taking over france in terms of size right okay. so uh it is this goal hasn't changed uh and they still uh, they are still aiming for that why do they want to subjugate ukraine why is putin actually still pursuing this goal is uh, because he wants to create uh big geo economic and geopolitical union with the size of Ukraine, 44 million people, like I said, second largest European country, and then with Belarus, because the existence of the Belarusian president since 2020, since the presidential election, is actually dependent on uh, Putin and on Putin's choices. So you build a big union uh, and you uh, practically destroyed the whole European security order. So the second dimension of this goal, you know, of this calculus, uh, is aimed at Europe. You 
you you no longer see yourself as being on the winning side. This European security order doesn't work for you. You're excluded. You feel like uh, uh, there there is no space. So. Uh, obviously, what you want to do is also to destroy this uh, security order that has been based on international, regional treaties, organizations, and so on and so forth. And by, you know, making such move on Ukraine, by winning against Ukraine, by destroying the security order, you create a concert of powers like in the 19th century, a chaos, political chaos, you destroy, you know, this order, and then you can penetrate, you can actually... Uh, make new deals with one power or the other, you have suddenly a lot of uh, of open space and of vacuum. And this is what, you know, a revisionist power wants actually to destroy the status quo, whereas most of the European powers are status quo powers. They like it the way it is. They don't want a war, obviously. So second dimension, it's about Europe uh, and, uh, you know, Putin has launched a non-kinetic war. That means a war uh, by non-military means against European powers uh, on the 24th of February. Now, most of the European powers, most of the European decision makers do not even understand it because they are still operating in this mindset of status quo. You're so happy with the heritage, with the institutional uh, heritage with the dual economic uh, uh, status quo that you have and that you have been enjoying over the last 30 years of, uh, you know, more than 70 years of peace, the last 30 years being on the winning side after the collapse of the Soviet Union, everything is fine, you have crises, but okay, somehow you have been managing these crises, you know, as a group of 27 powers within the European Union, and then you have also uh, the NATO, the European NATO, uh, NATO members, more of the European countries are also NATO members. Uh, so uh, these are status quo powers. They do not want any change. They want to keep it the way it was. And uh, uh, you have a big cleavage here. So this non-kinetic war means not just uh, de using dependencies like we've seen with the energy, cutting off the gas supply. There is no oil supply, meanwhile. Coal supplies also will cut off, but also using fertilizers, food, uh, the fear of migration flows, uh, the nuclear blackmail, and then you have an information warfare, a classic, uh, you know, classic tool that uh, that the Soviet Union has been uh, more or less uh, perfecting over, you know, decades. And the third dimension is that uh, Russia saw itself as a kind of uh, first-tier country, obviously not a you know systemic uh, uh, power, not having this kind of uh, global power projection anymore, but by triggering a systemic competition, an overt systemic competition, let's say a systemic conflict between United States and China, because Moscow anticipated that China would have to take the side of Russia this time, and it would have to do it in an overt manner, not just with few diplomatic uh, statements, but with political, you know, investments. And they did it. They took the Russian narratives about NATO expansion. They uh, supported Russia in all relevant in international organizations. They have been providing uh, a lot of economic uh, aid. They have been buying the Russian oil and gas, the commodities 
and uh, it's a kind of a perfect modus vivendi of coordination. So by doing this, this is a third dimension, you know, uh, Russia sought to win the war, to destroy the security order in Europe, and then position itself as this in indispensable power. You know, you have a pole position in a new systemic competition, and both rivals have to talk with you. They have to, because you change the equilibrium immediately. You are this kind of, uh, if you like, wild card, like India is going to be. But India, obviously, because of its competition with China, is always going to be more open to, you know, the American, uh, to the American uh, decision makers. But in the case of Russia, Russia can use this as a leverage uh, against and both not China the and of NATO or the inspection of NATO is just an excuse that Putin used. Well, let me give you an example. Plan he wanted to do anyway, is that correct? Yes, let me give you an example right. with NATO. In fact, what uh, Putin did with the, you know, making uh, this kind of move on Ukraine, launching a full-scale war against Ukraine, is to accelerate NATO enlargement because two neutral powers, two two neutral countries, the one being neutral for the last two hundred and fifty years, and the other one being neutral since the end of the second world war decided to not just uh, be more active within the european security and defense policy but they decided from one day to the next to actually apply for a membership uh, in nato and in well, fact this uh, uh, and i argue that the whole narrative by putin that uh, he had to launch a full-scale war against ukraine to prevent nato expansion from happening. In fact, he triggered NATO. He gave NATO a new meaning. Uh, and uh, let's say uh, he added two new, uh, new NATO members because it's only about uh, Turkey and Hungary and both already signaled that they will be also ratifying, you know, uh, the membership of, uh, you know, of uh, Finland and Sweden. So obviously, uh, next year, we will have two more NATO members. And I argue that Ukraine, in fact, did, was not intact by uh, Russia because it was striving to enter a NATO, but it actually was attacked by Russia because it wasn't NATO member. And well, just that's to, that's to clear that up, the answer, because this is what I heard, and I'm just because then I have another question I want to get to too. So, if someone who was highly critical of the narrative said, "Well, if NATO wasn't threatening expansion," Putin would have been pushed into that. You're saying that that's nonsense, that NATO increased um, and threatened expansion because of Putin and because Putin was eventually going to do something like this to increase. That's what you're saying, correct? Absolutely. This is what I'm saying. And also yeah. expansion yeah, no, is no, something like in geopolitical yeah. terms, uh, powers have to wage wars again and again to expand their territories yeah. and this is what russia is doing right now russia is sure, waging and i wasn't war. questioning but i wasn't questioning that but nato expansion sure means yeah. yes but nato expansion means that nato is waging wars against countries to expand its territories it's a big difference because none of these countries actually joined uh, nato because nato was threatening them you see, this is a big difference yes. in the narrative. Yeah. It is a NATO enlargement. That means you uh, have uh, you, you apply for a membership based on your free uh, will. You want to join, and then you have to fulfill conditions to join. And that means enlargement, not 
expansion. Expansion yeah. is something that has to happen uh, against your will, against the will of a state. You know, mm -hmm. you are expand uh, contrary to someone else's uh, interests and uh, and objectives. This is what so expansion, expansion is. is something that happens to you. Enlargement yes. is something that you do. That you want to join because you want yeah. to be part of something. And then mm -hmm. mostly it you have to fulfill conditions. And I mean, we'll give you the other example with the uh, European enlargement. European. Uh, so uh, if we follow the same logic, we should actually say European expansion. But the European uh, the European Union did not wage uh, wars to expand towards the centrist and uh, you know uh, European countries, which wanted to become part of the common market. Uh, some uh, now we have the counter example with UK. UK wanted to exit, and now you know with the Brexit we have 27 instead of 28 members. But the European Union did not wage a war against the UK, you know, because uh, it, this expansion, if we use the same Russian narrative, was uh, shrinking back towards, you know, losing one of the key, uh, one of the biggest uh, European powers um, now that it's not longer part of the European Union. So this logic of expansion against enlargement is uh, a very, very good example how actually narratives are being created. By yeah. the way, the Chinese officials, diplomatic officials were spreading this uh, from day one of the war. You can find it everywhere on social media, you know, using exactly yeah. that kind of uh, thing uh, to practically create a perception. Yeah, that's obviously where I find it, found it, and why I wanted to ask you that question. You know, I, I'm sure I'm going to be attacked as if I somehow was defending Russia. I'm not defending anybody. I don't know enough, so I wanted to ask someone who does the question. Oh, yeah, and I, I thought that hopefully we didn't get you riled up because I don't know shit. We have you on to explain this <laughs> stuff to us, and I appreciate that very much. But again, we do look at everything with a critical eye, and I'm glad we do, but I'm glad you explained that very well. But to wind it back to something, where are you located? In Europe, did you say? In Vienna, that's that's at the heart of uh, that's at the heart of uh, Europe, uh, as they like to say, because it's really between West and East, North and South. It's really in the middle. And that's why Hitler decided to to march on them early, correct? <laughs> Not expand, but annex. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, annex is a big difference. How many languages do you speak? My guess uh, is five. Yes. Five exactly. Yes. What's your What's your favorite language? I heard you say something French earlier, and you said it so perfectly. What's your favorite language of all? Par excellence, I said. I think you did. Well, it was beautiful. I yeah. like my I like my mother tongue best. Which is what? Bulgarian. Which and also because the rest of the world tends to look at the Eastern Eastern European languages as not the most beautiful. Do you defend it because of that? Is that why you choose Bulgarian? It, it, uh, it actually it sounds really <laughs> ugly. Most of the people think that uh, when I speak my mother tongue, I'm practically arguing <laughs> with the person. It sounds really. <laughs> There's such hard sounds in those. Very languages. hard sound. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Polish we get that, Jimmy. Always people always Germany. think Jimmy and I are arguing, but we've been doing this for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're just talking. Um, so I wanted to ask one more question before we let you go, but I know you, your whole Friday isn't going to be for us. But um, it sounds like what you're depicting in the United States and in Europe is going to be somewhat of a different life. And the excesses and the wonderful cheap goods 
that we've had for 30 years, we're nearing an end. So lifestyle is going to change, um, hopefully not dramatically, but significantly. That's exactly what you're saying, correct? Yes, that's my, that's my main, one of the, my main theses. Yes, it's going to be over more or less. Okay, Bobby, what do you got? Anything before? Because then with two, two guests in a row, we had Luke Groman, by the way. I don't know if you're familiar with Luke Bellina, but he was on last week. And he painted a pretty grim picture, too. And as you paint, it's not that grim a picture. It's a realistic picture. And that's what we, we go for. This was a here. much less grim picture than Luke painted. But that's yours is much less grim than Luke's. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're, you're a ray of sunshine. Uh, actually, I, I, I argue that I just want to have the, the, the right diagnostic. Because if you don't have the right diagnostic, uh, everything that we derive from you know wrong diagnostic will be wrong uh, you know the, will be the wrong medis medicine right to treat I agree. the symptoms of uh, the wrong medicine say, in this day and age is probably not the right phrase here's my question for you um and again thank you for this because honestly um you know your your no world war three was very soothing honestly when you said that because we respect respect the hell out of your brain but i want to know which country you think lasts the loudest at U.S. woke ideology? That's really what I want to know. Which country laughs the loudest at, at some of the things that are going on in the United States right now? You mean which countries are into this kind of uh, ideology? Do I Let me say well, Who's making Let fun me, of us? Let me, yeah, who's, who's making, making fun of us? And, and I'll give you an actual example. Uh, I don't remember his, his last name, Yoel something or other, said that. Um, being a moderator on Twitter while Trump was president, he felt trauma. Oh, trauma. <laughs> yeah, and I just don't understand using okay. the word trauma when you're being paid six or seven figures to moderate a chat room, calling any of that trauma when you consider some of the things that went on in the Slavic countries and in some of the third world countries, you know, in their histories. Uh, so I'm curious as to what country laughs at these sort of weak, I don't know, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> Okay, do you, feel, do you feel that we're weak, America? Um, okay, so <laughs> I have to be very careful because now it's becoming, it's becoming, it's becoming, we don't have to be it's careful, it's becoming very personal, you know. It's uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. actually <laughs> that's why actually, I asked you which country is laughing. If you say it's Bulgaria, I'm gonna know it's you. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, um, there is uh, indeed a kind of big difference, uh, how for instance. Um, Central Eastern European, uh, uh, Central Eastern European countries, uh, which are obviously the former Soviet bloc, are looking at certain developments <laughs> in the United States, <laughs> while being actually still the biggest uh, fans of America. I mean, as compared to, let's say, the what is here often described as old Europe, but practically it's you know the core Europe, the one that has been. Uh, the engine of the European Union before uh, all these processes began in the 90s, you know, the French, German bloc and uh, all the countries around. So there is this kind of uh, difference in the perception, what is going on in Europe, uh, the Western part of Europe, uh, this older bloc, they are like... Uh, they are like big fans of uh, the democratic administrations because they know that this is uh, going to be an administration that will be in favor of uh, uh, institutional cooperation, you know, European Union, United States cooperation. And they are more into this, uh, let's say, 
walk uh, kind of <laughs> say bullshit say bullshit but old uh, old versus uh, new uh, is a kind of dividing line that we are having right now uh, and we have been having uh, here in Europe so central eastern european countries the uh, you know the old soviet the former soviet bloc these are countries that have um a kind of allergy against anything that has to do with marxist with marxist uh, tones and characteristics mm -hmm. it can be uh, hidden behind green agendas it can be hidden behind any woke agenda problem. okay it can yeah. be hidden behind all of this kind of so anything that has uh, that has uh, like a marxist uh, uh, tone uh, we are very much allergic against it because we see that uh, all these class struggles that were artificially created during the Cold War, you know, we were uh, fighting uh, the, cap the, ba the bad capitalists, right? We, we had these class struggles, but you can create dividing lines also based on gender or based on any other, oh, now, for instance, green, uh, you know, uh, how how uh, woke are you in terms of uh, uh, of uh, you know of uh, green agenda? How quick do you want to speed up? Uh, quickly do you want to speed up these processes towards decarbonization stuff like that? So we are very much aware of that. I have uh, been observing a very interesting uh, similar discussion. Uh, for instance, coming uh, coming from India right now, I have a friend who is uh, actually uh, now. Uh, publishing a big book on that, exactly on this kind of woke uh, culture. And it's very interesting because he's based in uh, United States, but he's an Indian and he has produced this big, uh, you know, big uh, publication uh, on uh, exactly this matter, given the fact that uh, India has uh, some provinces also with the Communist Party. So it's a very, uh, you know, very uh, dichotomic uh, society. It's not a coherent one. So I think that uh, we are going to have a very, um, how to say, we don't have a coherent approach on that. You can you cannot generalize on that matter, but this is obviously something where uh, I would put myself on, uh, let's say, um, on the side of uh, being very cautious about it. I just don't buy into it. And uh, I see myself coming from also a kind of uh, society that has become very anti-fragile when it comes to all these kind of um, um, crises. We've seen hyperinflation already in the 90s, a real hyperinflation, like uh, lasting more than a year. Uh, most of the Europeans uh, on the other side of, uh, you know, on the other side of uh, of uh, Europe, in the Western Europe, they haven't seen such thing. Right. They haven't experienced that kind of thing. And next to war, hyperinflation is the most horrible thing that can happen to a human being. I can assure you, a big, you know, speaking from a personal experience. So this kind of crisis is we are, you know, we have had uh, communist rule. We have had practically almost everything. So we won't be scared of, or let's say uh, this kind of walk culture is not something that we can easily buy into it, which is why now we have all these also populist movements that go in both directions. You're gonna witness a lot 
with crises, with inflationary crises, you're going to witness a lot of, uh, uh, you know, far, far right, far left uh, kind of extremes. That's unfortunate. The center disappears and the extremes become stronger and stronger. Very unfortunate. Funny, funny that you mentioned that. You know, Bobby and I are from Chicago, and I don't know if you associate it, but in, in the United States, Chicago is basically a Polish city. That's what we, so like I, I count at least 10 friends in the Chicago area who are immigrants from Poland and they think exactly the way that you you say. Their fists are up like this anytime the government starts telling us the way to think and what we're supposed to do. And uh, I think that yeah, that's we are allergic. We are allergic against that. We are allergic exactly. against any centra centralization of uh, power. So first Good. thing that happens, oh, and also coming from society, when a group tells you, tries to tell you uh, what uh, the, you know, the rules of the game Right, are. then we give them that, exactly. Yes, yes. exactly. That's, Good, yeah. So that's in way, our no DNA. It's no that's in our that DNA. I have 10 Polish friends because I like the Polish people because they think like I think, <laughs> exactly. So well, it's super interesting. Uh, if you have time for a, just a two-minute story, um, when I was working in a pretty large brokerage firm, there was a uh, Bulgarian woman named, uh, she wouldn't mind me saying her name, uh, Elena Tombeva, who came to work for me and barely spoke English when she came to work for me. She went on basically to uh, go to school at night, do all the work. She went from basically getting me coffee because that's all I had for her to do at the time to going to Morgan Stanley. And now she works at the Milken Institute, just worked and worked and worked. And as we became social, where it wasn't just employer employee, she would hang around with myself and my wife and our group of friends and her and her boyfriend. And she offended every single American born person. Now I tell everyone that I'm a, you know, I'm first generation here, but I spoke Italian before I spoke English. She never once offended me. I just knew that, you know, Eastern Europeans, as a general rule, they give their opinion. They don't. They tell you what they think. That's it's what just we their like opinion. About exactly. They yes. don't necessarily, they don't care if you give your opinion to them. Yes. And all she That's would correct. sit me down in the office and go, why is everybody so mad at me? I'm like, because you say what you think. You need to stop doing that if you want to be American. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> same, same goes for, yes. That's also a big difference, I would say. Yeah. That, that is something that I would like to confirm that it goes <laughs> good. Don't change. We it love goes that. in That's both directions, in both yeah. on both sides of the Atlantic. It's the same. Uh, yeah, and probably this is this has uh, also a lot to do with uh, the harsh reality. If you have sure. been uh, living in a society where you were practically uh, you were practically being spied by your by your own relatives and co-workers, everyone was spying and everyone, and you were. Uh, paying attention what you are saying, right? And then at some point of time, finally, that's over. You're not going to <laughs> remain silent. So no we want way. you to stay. No the way. Queen. You're remaining silent. No way. We so want this... you to stay the queen of fucking everything, Bolina. Okay, just stay there. <laughs> that's. I will promise that <laughs> there will be more coming out in. Good. New this year. has been this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Bolina. This has been fun. It's such a a fun different track for us to not specifically talk about the stock market, the bond market. And uh, thank you for opening my eyes to a lot of things. Uh, hopefully you'll come back again if it was fun for you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I will be listening to, uh, to you are invited now on Complete uh, Intelligence, right? Uh, by Tony. I will be listening yes. to your I show. Today. I did that yes, today. Energy. Okay. Yes, yes, on energy. And uh, of course, uh, there will be a lot of uh, opportunities um, uh, 
just to finish with a positive note, there will be a lot of opportunities, a lot of, uh, you know, um, avenues uh, for actually uh, cooperation, um, given the fact that uh, now there are more players and, you know, the cake is the same. So more players creates more competition and more competition is not, not necessarily uh, something negative. On the opposite, it creates actually uh, the, you know, it makes um, uh, through the competition, everyone wants to get better. And uh, that, uh, that I think is going to be the good news out of uh, a lot of uh, <laughs> negative uh, news that we've uh, covered uh, in this uh, conversation, specifically in parts of the world such as African. It's not going to be only about this big scramble uh, for natural resources, but it's going to be also uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, potential to 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 you know to improve uh, the life uh, of uh, of ordinary people. And awesome. ordinary people in Europe, in America, in all of these parts of the world. Perfect. All right. Well, that's going to be Thank it for you. me. I'm heading to the bar. Thank you so much. It was really, ah, really that's, fun. That sounds like a good plan. Thank you. Thank you yeah, for the invitation. <laughs> bye. Yeah. Bye bye. Good night, guys. Bye.